Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This is a pre-recorded show which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, July the 13th, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 13th post-COVID show, A New World But the Same Place. So stay tuned. But first, as we do before every show, we first go to war. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Good evening. So welcome, Alternative News listeners. Wanted to start the show off tonight with... Over the last 17 years or more, we have been on the air here at Co-op Radio. Bringing Light into Darkness has a historical record of calling out and being later proven correct in calling out false representations of certainty on breaking U.S. foreign policy-related claims. Over the years, we have called out a number of dominant narratives that were largely evidence-free, yet were presented with near or absolute certainty to the American public by mainstream media. Instead of presenting evidence, the government offers accusations, and the mainstream media, instead of properly vetting the accusations, dutifully report them as coming from quote-unquote anonymous intelligence officials as the source. All the other mainstream media entities often do the same and even cite each other as if that was further evidence to support the anonymous claims that takes on the false appearance of being cross-referenced. MSNBC, Fox, and CNN routinely quote the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, who basically are doing little more than quoting an anonymous intelligence source. In this way, a single anonymous source is given the false appearance that it has been cross-referenced by multiple sources in the minds of the average U.S. news consumer. This is just one method of what mind management looks like when you are trying to build a U.S. consensus for conflict. These unsubstantiated claims, through their mere repetition, magically become accepted as fact, as certainty, despite their absence of a level of evidence that would justify the certainty that they are claiming. In fact, years later, the preponderance of evidence revealed suggests that they were outright false claims. Examples since 2003 were bringing light into darkness challenged the false certainty being presented at the time include, but are not limited to, the false claims made that led us to invade Iraq in 2003, the false narrative that Russia, in an unprovoked act of aggression, invaded Georgia in August of 2008, the false claims around the U.S.-supported coup that overthrew the democratically elected Honduran President Manuel Zelaya in June of 2009, the false certainty that the gas attacks in 2013, 2017, and 2018 were executed by the Syrian government, 
the unsubstantiated claim in prosecution without due process that 2018 Skirple poisonings were done by Russian intelligence, as well as the core Russiagate accusations that were never proven despite two years of endless inquiry. Last week, it was the Russian bounty claims without evidence that we detailed. The unsubstantiated narrative that the Russian government paid bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan was a certainty a week ago. As of today, it's been transformed into not whether they did it or not, but instead how Trump mishandled the whole affair of not properly investigating the accusations. It is if the whole intent is to engender hate against our adversaries, not based on objective facts, but instead based on a rush to judgment without presenting evidence to support it. Why? Because as evidenced by our foreign policy past, and we detailed on last week's show, comparatively speaking, we are an aggressor nation, and we need to demonize those countries that do not largely follow our dictates. Tonight, we wanted to provide listeners with two major themes. The first is a detailed overview of the Skirpal poisoning accusations, never proven, but even before the police investigation was complete, Russia was tried, convicted, and sentenced by the West and its allies in the mainstream media. And as a result, a hundred or more Russian diplomats were expelled from Western nations based on unsubstantiated allegations and a legal process of prosecution devoid of due process that we will detail tonight, largely from a past interview that we had with Alexander Mercoris on May 7th of 2018. Alexander Mercoris is the editor of the Duran and a, with an attorney background. The second part of the show is an overview of John Kerry in sworn testimony in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which held a hearing back in September 3rd of 2013 to debate the possible authorization of U.S. military action against the Syrian government in response to the allegation that the Syrian government, with absolute certainty, was responsible for the August 21st, 2013 Syrian gas attack in a Damascus suburb, El Gotha. This is presented as a case study, namely how Kerry presents his information of how unproven accusations get presented to the U.S. public as absolute certainties. Using plausible deniability, the truth is compromised many times without perjuring oneself. The bottom line is learning to deconstruct and to separate factual claims supported by ample evidence to justify the claim from half-truths in the absence of exculpatory evidence that would seriously question the desired narrative. We will review half a dozen or so implications that Kerry put forth that were each contradicted by substantial evidence that was left out of or misrepresented during the testimony or his testimony, raising the question, what's the goal to lead us deeper into another unjust war? Tonight, I am very pleased and we're honored to have with us Alexander McCorris from uh, across the pond, that I, I guess is what they say. So, Alexander, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Delighted to be with you, Pedro. <laughs> Hey, well, listen, uh, Mr. McCorris is a London-based writer on international affairs. Uh, he has a special interest and knowledge and insights regarding the law. Uh, he's studied Russian news and things all that, that are connected to Russia. There's been this whole process over the last number of years, to say the least, positioning Russia as just uh, the villain time in and time out. And, you know, they may or may not be, but the evidence for the claims has been lacking when I really 
drill down looking for it. So his interest and actually his expertise is on the topics that we're going to ask him to speak to tonight, which include international law. Mr. McCorris has written extensively on the legal aspects of NSA spying and events in Ukraine in terms of human rights, uh, the constitutionality, and uh, international law. Uh, He's a frequent commentator on television and other news medias and uh, speaks at conferences. Um, He worked for 12 years in the Royal Courts of Justice in London as a lawyer, specializing in human rights and constitutional law. So that's really to me, what is so enlightening about his analyses. He, he approaches things from the readings that I've done of his pieces now for, for, for a couple of years with that type of approach. You know, show me the money, and, and, then, uh, uh, and then he, uh, he, he goes from there. So anyhow, thank you again, Alexander, for joining us. I wanted to start off. There, there, there has, of course, been, most recently, the very serious accusations of Sergei Skripal, who was convicted in Russia for spying for Great Britain. And in March of 2018 in Salisbury, UK, him and uh, his daughter were victims of apparently some type of uh, chemical uh, attack that hospitalized them. The British immediately alleged, without to this date, to my knowledge, providing any empirical evidence that a military-grade nerve agent of a type that's known as Novichok, which is a name of a chemical family, was used in in Salisbury, saying it was originally developed in the former Soviet Union, and therefore uh, Moscow's hand, even Vladimir Putin's hand, was highly likely. So on the basis of this, what transpired very quickly, uh, within days, 48 hours, were these accusations and the falling into line through a number of countries and expelling Uh, dozens and dozens, up to a hundred Russian diplomats without the courtesy of any type of investigative process being made made public. Now, I I wanted to ask to start off, there's so much to talk about here, but I wanted to ask you first that Craig Murray, a former uh, ambassador for the UK, um, has written a couple of pieces recently on his website alleging that, first of all, the very premise that has become completely adopted as fact that Russia and only Russia has such types of chemicals that were allegedly responsible for this attack on these two individuals. Can you speak, first of all, to if you're familiar with Mr. Murray's writings and do you find them uh, to be integrable and can, you, and, and can you share with us his conclusions? Right. Well, Craig Murray is uh, um, an indispensable source uh, for anybody who wants to understand uh, the Skripal affair. He is, as you rightly say, a former British ambassador. He was a British ambassador in Uzbekistan, which is a former uh, uh, part, was formerly part of the Soviet Union. And he's very familiar, obviously, with that part of the world. He, he got sacked from the post of uh, ambassador to Uzbekistan because he protested the British government's support for torture there. And he was the subject of an extraordinary campaign to discredit him, which completely fell apart and which left him completely vindicated. So he is perhaps a difficult man, as he would admit himself, but he is a man of great integrity. He understands how the British government and the British civil service works extremely well. And what he has been saying about the whole uh, Skripal affair 
has been uh, frankly spot on and he has been proved consistently right. That's what I'm going to say about him. Now, the major point that he has made, and he has been proved completely right about this, is that the British government cannot prove that the chemical agent, which it says poisoned Sergei and Yulia Skripal, was made in Russia. The British government has tried to give the impression that this chemical agent was somehow traceable back to Russia, but it has now been admitted by the British scientists who examined it that this is not the case at all. The, uh, the chemical agent, which is often referred to as Novichok... And, and before, before you go on, Alexander, and, and when you say the British scientists, you're talking about the ones at Porton Downs, right? Or? I mean the ones at Porton Down. I mean exactly that. Mm-hmm. Porton Down, I should explain, is the, is the big center in Britain for chemical weapons research. Mm-hmm. That's where they do all their work. They were the people who examined this, this uh, uh, substance. They said it was a Novichok. I should say a Novichok, because there's a whole family of these chemical agents, which are called uh, Novichoks. This specific one is said to be one called A234, but it's one of several of these types of agents. Um, They say it was one of these agents, A234, but they cannot say it was made in Russia. Now... Novichok agents are supposed to have been developed in Russia in the 1970s and 1980s during the Cold War. But it is well established, in fact, it is not disputed that the information on how to make them has been widely distributed around the world, including the United States, including in Iran, where they were recently produced under supervision, under international supervision, to see how they could be produced. And it seems recently there's also been suggestions that they were made in Czechoslovakia as well uh, during the time of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And it seems that this agent is not actually particularly difficult or complicated to produce, and it cannot be used in and of itself to prove that Russia carried out this attack. So, so let's 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 um, let's focus on that one one uh, quickly because as soon as you 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 mention Iran, of course, everybody uh, has been trained yeah. in this country to say, oh, well, that's unreliable, yeah. etc. But but what you said is very important, and, and this is what uh, Craig Murray has has said that he came across information that in, in I think it was late 2016 that Iranian scientists set out to study whether these Novichoks really could be produced from commercially available ingredients, and they succeeded. But this was under the direct cooperation, supervision, and knowledge of the OPCW, and it was immediately Absolutely. reported as such. So is this, a, this is, is this the way these things work? Now, if you want to have these types of experiments and you don't want to be accused of clandestinely trying to create a weapons program yourself, you, what, you register your work with uh, the OPC. Are, are you familiar with that type of... Uh, yes, that is exactly what you're supposed to do because mm-hmm. the name of the OPCW is the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Mm-hmm. The point about Novichok's is that there's uncertainty, or there has been uncertainty, about whether they should be classified as chemical weapons. And what the Iranians did, 
And the Iranians were, of course, major targets of chemical weapons warfare against them by Saddam Hussein, mm -hmm. is they wanted to establish that this was a dangerous weapon and one which could be used as a weapon. So they cooperated with the OPCW. They carried out this experiment in order to convince the OPCW that this is a dangerous weapon mm -hmm. and one which should be banned. The country, incidentally, which has opposed banning the Novichoks or classifying them as chemical weapons, appears to be the United States. Now, I say that, though, I mean, this is probably disputed, but there's been some uh, leaks of uh, communications that uh, uh, went through, emails and the rest, which appear to suggest that uh, uh, the State Department uh, um, was at one time lobbying the OPCW against classifying mm -hmm. uh, uh, Novichoks as chemical weapons. So as of this moment in time, Novichoks are not classified as chemical weapons, though I think everybody agrees they should be, and I think everybody expects that before very long they will be. Well, let me ask you this, because I think it's important while we're on the subject. There are a number of countries that have signed the Chemical Weapons Convention. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of countries that I'm not completely clear on that have not, but what's very clear, what's very clear is my understanding is that Russia has submitted to the process of eliminating its chemical weapons under the supervision of the OPCW, if I'm not mistaken, but the United States is not. And I'm wondering if you can share what is the, is the actual environment of countries that actually have chemical weapons capabilities that we know of and those that have joined the convention and gotten rid of all of theirs. Can you give us kind of an overview of that right. real quick? If I can first of all deal with Russia. The sure. point about Russia, mm -hmm. uh, both Russia and the United States are members of the OPCW. Mm -hmm. Russia is c committed itself back in the 1980s to eliminating all of its chemical weapons. In November of last year, it claimed with the cooperation of the OPCW that it had done so. It says that it has entirely eliminated all of its chemical weapon stocks, that it holds no chemical weapons whatsoever, and that it is free of chemical weapons. The United States is not uh, uh, in a position at the moment to say that it has completely eliminated all of its chemical weapons. It still possesses some. It is committed eventually to disposing of them, but it has not yet done so. Mm -hmm. And some of these chemical weapons, I guess, are, like you were saying earlier, you know, what constitutes a chemical weapon can be a political well, football as well, in a sense, right? So, um, Well, that's exactly right, because, mm -hmm. of course, there, there are, there are uh, uh, weapons that are clearly identified as chemical weapons. So, for example, to, to give one uh, well-known example, sarin gas, mm -hmm. which is this gas that we've been hearing so much about in Syria and Iraq, that is definitely known to be a chemical weapon. Novichoks have never been classified as chemical weapons because they are so new, and they were never deployed by any military during the Cold War in any quantity. So they just fell through the, uh, uh, they fell through the holes. They weren't really noticed. And other, other chemicals that are sometimes used as chemical, as chemical weapons, like chlorine, uh, um, also have legitimate civilian applications. Mm -hmm. So they always, there's, a, there's a huge gray area 
about specific substances, whether they're chemicals, whether they're chemical weapons or not. And something like chlorine can be both a chemical weapon and a legitimate chemical used in, used in, used in industry. Mm-hmm. I would just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to 91.7 KOP Hornsby Austin. This is bringing light into darkness with Alexander McCorris, a London-based writer with astute knowledge in international law. Let, mm-hmm. let me ask you, let me turn to this issue. I mean, to me, what I'm seeing time and time again is the rush to judgment in so many ways and in so many different times, time and time again, with the complicity of the more liberal elements of the the mass media, as well as the more conservative ones, carrying the water of these accusations without any real due process of validating some of these claims. And I want to speak specifically to the allegations against Russia. So you have a country, UK, which has every right to defend its country from chemical attacks in any form or fashion, okay? Um, now, there, there is a process, uh, in my understanding, as to how you would prosecute an accusation against another country. And it seems to me that there's a due process is a fundamental principle of how you do this, that the, that the accused has a right to see evidence and that type of thing. And from my understanding, the Russia has reached out to try to find out exactly what it's being accused of using and those types of things and is in the complete dark, relatively speaking. Can you illuminate that a little bit, you know, the, the, this process? Yes. I think you've actually explained it very well. There is, there is, first of all, a procedure under the Chemical Weapons Convention. The procedure is set out in Article 9 of that convention, which is that where uh, one country feels that it's been attacked or has had some problems with chemicals that come from another country, it sends a request through the organization for uh, the prohibition of chemical weapons to this other country, setting out all the material reasons why it has concerns, and the other country then has 10 days in which to respond and provide answers. And then there is a procedure which should be followed if those answers are not fully sufficient. Now, the important thing to say is that the British completely ignored that procedure. They decided that they would uh, have no part in it. They simply said within a few hours, as you said, of of Mr. and Ms. Skripal being found on that park bench in Salisbury, they said the Russians were responsible. They didn't ask the Russians properly how it happened. They challenged the Russians to say whether they done it on purpose or whether it was a leak, but it was clearly pointing a finger at the Russians and entirely ignoring the procedure which is set out under Article 9 of the Convention. The other thing which, of course, one has to bear in mind in these things is that there is always, in every crime, and this case relates to a crime, Mm -hmm. supposed to be a principles of what what are known as due process. Due process involves things like giving a presumption of innocence to the accused. So it is the prosecution that has to prove guilt, not the accused that has to prove innocence. And the the accused person, or in this case state, should be given all the evidence that is being used to bring the accusation against it. So, so like the in British our country here... Yeah. Refused to do that. 
Let's talk about due process. I think this is a huge issue for us that are not attorneys to understand. I yeah. certainly don't understand it completely. But so what you're saying is, is there, I've seen this like on TV shows, like, like if you have, what is it, discovery, that type of thing, don't you have to show the other side what you're mm. planning to present as the evidence of your claim so that they can prepare their defense accordingly? Is that what you're saying, by, that they Absolutely. have a right to see the evidence? It's fundamental to the principle mm-hmm. of a fair trial. Mm-hmm. You have to, as the accused, mm-hmm. be in a position to respond fully to the allegations that are made against you. And you cannot do that unless you're provided with all the evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, bear in mind, this is a crime that has been committed mm-hmm. in Britain, or an alleged crime. There is a police investigation There are supposed to be people, the British say they may be Russians, we don't know that, but they may be Russians, who uh, they're going to accuse at some point. But the evidence that is being made, that is being used to make these these accusations of Russian guilt is not being produced and shown to the Russians. And Mm -hmm. uh, that is a clear violation of due process because without it, no fair trial could ever take place, and nor could Russia, as a state, it be in a position to say these allegations which have been made against us are untrue. So you can't be in a position to defend yourself if you're not quite sure what's being the accusation. Does that make sense? Let me ask you this. That's there, exactly right. There is an ongoing, to my understanding, a police investigation, as you just mentioned in your earlier statement, by the UK police, or whatever that authority is, it seems more than strange that not just that accusations would be made, but that now we have a hundred diplomats being expelled. And has there even been a conclusion or any types of validation by the, what I assume is an independent police investigation that is in parallel to the accusations being made by the government? Is it the same, or are they two different things? Can you, can you share that with us? No, they're, they're completely different things. Right. The police mm-hmm. are investigating a crime, mm-hmm. and the government has made all kinds of allegations and has uh, uh, orchestrated around the world this expulsion of diplomats. Uh, and that is entirely the wrong thing, because the fundamental principle in Britain, in British law, is that it is courts that decide questions of a guilt or innocence based on evidence which is provided to them by the police and the prosecution. What the government has done is that it has completely disregarded all of that uh, and not waited to see what the police say, rushed to say that Russia is guilty without providing the evidence, and in doing so, it has not only forced the expulsion of all sorts of Russian diplomats and created a crisis, a diplomatic crisis, it has also, I would say, prejudiced the police investigation because the police are now going to be under very great pressure to agree with whatever the government has said. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very difficult for them to turn around now and say, well, actually, it has nothing to do with Russia. We've actually discovered someone else, and it was carried out by them, because that would create a huge political crisis in Britain, and it's very difficult to imagine a police officer in Salisbury, whose job depends on being paid a government salary, 
from actually taking that enormous risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. McCourse, if you can just hold on, we need to take a quick break, a pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, the premier community radio station of the nation. We'll be back right after this. 